Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. everyone and welcome to the bad taste crime podcast i am janelle i'm vicky we're here for another awesome episode while vicky's on her deathbed i'm still sick (laughs) it's fine it's getting better i'm sure by this point hopefully i know man are you going to make it to 2022 oh god we'll see (laughs) hopefully i'm not even going to be in the state to celebrate new year's that's That's cool i'll be in michigan instead not much better but you know, <laughs> it'll be fine. It'll be, it'll be a good time. <laughs> well, this is our show, and we're going to do it now. <laughs> and go. And go. Uh, go. If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. We are going to head over to the newsroom. So, BuzzFeed. They have actually started... news. Here's the thing. (laughs) Is they started hiring, I think, some actual journalists because... Not just people who used to work at Cracked? Yes. Yeah, me neither. (laughs) Um, I don't understand either. (laughs) They have actually been putting out some really good reporting the last couple of months on some really heavy-hitting stuff. Wow. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> they were shook. <laughs> they were actually the first to report on one of the papers releases. I don't oh. know if it was the Pandora papers or if it was so one, of, one of those. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so they have been putting out some really interesting stuff. I found this. Um, they had they actually obtained some documents through freedom of information requests that date all the way back to I think it was like 2011, 2012 that they've been like and some lawsuits and some refilings yes to get some interagency reports hundreds of interagency reports they discovered that the cia has obtained credible evidence that at least 10 of its employees and contractors committed sexual crimes involving children most of the cases were referred to u.s attorneys for prosecution but only one resulted in any charges 
Great. People are going to think that Pizzagate's real now. (laughs) Um, The biggest consequences seem to be loss of their job and security clearance. Here's just a couple examples. Oh, goody. (laughs) Yeah, strap in. I don't want to. One employee had sexual contact with a two-year-old and a six-year-old. He was fired. He just fired? Only fired. A second employee purchased three sexually explicit videos of young girls filmed by their mothers. He resigned. Filmed by their mothers? Yep. Oh, no. uh, there is a cabal. Vicky, there is a cabal. Oh, God, please. <laughs> Don't add fuel to the fire, Janelle. Um, a third employee estimated that he had viewed up to 1,400 sexually abusive images of children while on agency assignments. The records do not say what action, if any, the CIA took against him. That's kind of a tricky one, because if you're doing it to solve crimes. I don't think it was. Charles crimes? <laughs> no. I do not think that's what this was. Okay. Um, yeah, how does that even work? The, like, what? A contractor who arranged for sex with an undercover FBI agent posing as a child had his contract revoked. So former officials say the CIA's Office of the Inspector General, where all of these reports originated from, sometimes chooses not to prosecute because they're afraid a witness may be inadvertently forced to disclose sources and methods, and they do not want to lose control of the sensitive material. Sure. Yeah. So this article honestly was... National (laughs) security. This article is really interesting, and they did, of course, post up all of these documents, um, which are heavily redacted. Mm-hmm. You know, they are CIA documents after all, but like yeah. pretty shocking stuff because it sounds like there's kind of a child abuse issue. Sexual abuse issue in some of our fucking government <laughs> agencies. Because it sounded like this is not not this is not the Fuck. first time it's happened. Fuck. It's in multiple agencies. Were they right this whole time, Vicky? No. No. I'll tell you the answer to that is no. I mean They were not right. The government is garbage and it attracts people who are garbage. And very rarely is there a person who is there to do actual good and not in the self-interest of themselves. Right. So anyway, <laughs> uh, definitely check so out, check out this article. It's crazy. Anarchy? Yeah. I'm hearing burn the state down. Yep. <laughs> Let's just start over. Yes. Start from scratch. Mm-hmm. We'll leave. We'll come back. No. We're going to be like libertarians and make our own. <laughs> This is my laws, my country, my property, Mm -hmm. Um, my gun, my gun, my tiger. Uh, um, Okay, moving right along to Netflix and Kill, where this week we're talking about the motive. Now, this is a documentary that looks at the 1986 investigation into the murders of Nassim and Leah Cohen and their daughters, Anat and Shira, in Jerusalem. Um, It was discovered pretty quickly that their 14-year-old son, who is only identified as the boy through the whole film, because he was anonymous during the course of this entire thing, that he committed these horrible acts. It is like fair warning. There are crime scene photos on there and they are not pretty. Like it is brutal. It would be terrible if they were pretty. Brutal. (laughs) Yeah. It was an absolutely brutal murder scene. But the questions that the investigators continue to ask is why. Like, the why seems to be the thing that is the most confounding in this whole case. Because essentially, the only explanation offered up was that a green monster told him to. There is, like, some connection to this movie and, like, a light shining down and him hearing this voice. But, like, essentially, that's what it boils down to is this green monster told him to. 
like I said, this whole time he's been anonymous and it's it's known that he received nine years in prison for manslaughter and was released after six years for good behavior. Mm-hmm. Other than that, people don't really know what happened to him. Um, it's pretty interesting. It's all in, I think, Hebrew. Is that what they... I think... It could also be, I don't know what the... Israeli is a different language as well. Yeah. Point is, subtitles. Mm-hmm. So, heads up on that. But... Like, it is just kind of a, it's a very weird case that doesn't totally have a clear answer to it. I don't know. I thought, have you watched this yet? Mm-hmm. It's pretty I good. I haven't been able to turn on anything where I have to, like, actually pay attention. <laughs> yeah. That's why <laughs> I was like. Subtitles, I was like, I can't do that right now because then I'm going to actually look at the screen and I need noise. <laughs> yeah. That's why I like to give a subtitle warning because mm-hmm. these are, I def, I don't want to say that to deter people from watching them, but like mm-hmm. that has a, an effect on you my decision to, to watch something. Actually pay yeah. attention. Yeah. I've been, because it's like the end, of, you know, it was the end of the semester. Yes. And I was doing all the research. So I was just turning stuff on as like background noise. Oh my God. Bob Burger, Bob's Burgers on loop. That's what I have right now. Yeah. All the time. I, uh, yeah. I haven't been watching much. As of late, I did go on a weird binge after uh, Thanksgiving because I had a couple of days off. But, you know, I yeah. skipped around and watched some weird stuff. Nice. <laughs> nice. So definitely check it out. It's called The Motive. It's on Netflix right now. This is that part of the show where we say content might not be appropriate for our listeners. Janelle, what are we talking about this week? Well, Vicky, I hope you're ready to go Rocky Mountain High for this episode because we are talking crimes. Out of Colorado. Colorado. <laughs> Colorado. Oh, boy. Now, I I conducted a middle school report on the state of Colorado, so oh. I'm just going to give you some fast facts if you're not familiar. Okay. I didn't Colorado, know this was... Um, did you bring your diorama with you? and your? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we definitely did something. I think I did the state of Virginia for nice. a report nice. in middle school. I remember that. <laughs> um, Colorado became a state in 1876 and is the 38th state. It is known as the Centennial State because it became a state one century after after the founding of the U.S. Okay. Uh, the capital is Denver. And the state dinosaur is a stegosaurus. And yes, that is a thing. <laughs> do we have a state dinosaur? We do. And I don't remember what it is. <laughs> why? I don't know why. But state dinosaurs are a thing. And Colorado is, that a, is thing? a stegosaurus. Illinois state dinosaur. There's all kinds of weird things. There's the flower. Why do we need a, a state song, dinosaur? A motto, a dinosaur, a mineral. List of U.S. state dinosaurs. What? You're welcome. <laughs> what? Some of these are from the 90s. Yeah. Dinosaurs are hecking cool, obviously. Oh, not every... You know what? Not every state has a dinosaur. Do we have a dinosaur? Um, We have a... No. <gasps> we do not. Illinois? How fucking dare you? <laughs> There's actually not that many that have a dinosaur. Well, Colorado probably, does though. Probably because they find a lot of dinosaurs in Colorado. <laughs> wow. So you interesting. Can, um, petition your state to have a state dinosaur if they do not. So. <laughs> oh, we'll have to. Talk. Okay, so we're gonna have to come back to this off mic because this is kind of interesting. But oh please right. continue. Boy, I'm in dinosaur history now. So our tale today is going to cover the hottest thing to come out of Colorado before weed that was legal. And <laughs> <laughs> nice. Vicky, I hope that you're ready to ride the silver bullet. There's a little clue. We're going to be talking about the kidnapping of one of a family member who belonged to the biggest brewing company in U.S. history. This is the kidnapping of Adolf Coors the Third. <laughs> 
and Coors? Right. Coors. Like Ride the, the beer? bullet. Coors. Yeah. The beer. Oh. Okay. So, the one who started the Coors Company, the OG himself, and again, in a very unfortunate name, Adolf Herman Joseph Coors. And it was Coors. spelled K-U-H-R-S originally. Now, Adolf number one came to the U.S. in 1868, just a few years after he had been orphaned due to his parents dying within months of each other. Oh, no. He actually was a brewer's apprentice as a teenager. Okay. And he decided to go to the U.S. to work in that industry. He came over as a stowaway that year, and his name was changed to Coors because America. Because, yep, <laughs> Because that no one right. has had a fucking spell. Yeah. So It was just easier this way, also, don't you know? people don't know how to read different languages. Yeah. You're coming in and it's like, huh. My paternal, I had to think about that, paternal <laughs> grandfather's original last name was Pianio, and they changed it to Priola, and Priola was actually the place where they came from. Okay. Priola, Italy. Oh, boy. So, dumb. Anyway... <laughs> So he eventually landed in New York, and he found his way to Naperville, Illinois. Oh. Oh, slightly local for a minute. Okay. Now, in Naperville, Illinois, he worked for a gentleman for a couple of years, and then he left to go to Colorado to start his own brewing company. It was there that he purchased an abandoned brewery with a partner who he then bought out of only a couple years later. He renamed it in 1880 to Adolf Coors Golden Brewery, and I wanted to start back here because I wanted to tell you kind of about how cursed the family was. Oh, gosh. Like Just, old world cursed? Yes. Or they like... Were, like they, were, they were pretty cursed. Okay. Just after the stock market crash in 1928, Adolf Coors I died, and it is debated whether or not it was a suicide or a murder. Okay. Either way, he came hurtling out of a sixth floor window uh, while he was at Virginia Beach, Virginia. Oh. <laughs> so did he jump my. or was he thrown? We don't know. Okay. The company then passed on to Adolf Coors Jr., who was unfortunately still stuck with the name. Yes. <laughs> it's a family problem. name. It's very German and very unfortunate because then comes war. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Junior also had lots of problems. And also, there was an attempted robbery on him in 1934. So this is, again, with the curse. Denver police got wind of a kidnapping plot around this time targeting Coors Jr. Paul Robert Lane, a former state prohibition agent for Colorado, along with Clyde Culbertson, who was a former investigator for the Federal Dry Forces, which, yeah, uh, along with two other conspirators, planned to kidnap Adolf Jr. for a ransom of $50,000. Wow. The person delivering the money was to proceed to three different checkpoints to ensure that no officers were tailing him, and then they were going to split the money. They would eventually release Coors around Colorado Springs. That was the whole plan. Now, the kidnapping plot was uncovered by accident when police were investigating a car theft ring. Oh. So they actually told Coors Jr. and he agreed to let them kidnap him. He was like, yeah, we'll go through with it. I'll let them kidnap me. But unfortunately, Lane, the main conspirator, was arrested on another theft charge and the plot was never proceeded. Oh, whoops. So, again, the Coors curse. Yeah, <laughs> almost. 
Now, Almost a kidnapping. Coors Jr. had four children with his wife, and one of them was again, unfortunately, Adolf Coors III. Oh. Coors III was the heir to the Coors throne. He was a graduate of Cornell and played baseball semi-professionally until he was able to take over the company. By 1960, he was CEO and chairman of the board of the Coors Brewing Company. It's a mouthful. And on February 9th, 1960, Coors left for work, but never arrived. Mysterious. Put some pictures in here because this is going to get a little bit weird when we're talking about this. Okay. Now, Colorado, 1960s, there wasn't a interstate system really established there. So the roadways, a lot of them were still dirt or gravel or stone and not paved. So just keep that in mind. Okay. That morning, a milkman was on his route and came to the bridge over Turkey Creek, which is what's pictured below. In the middle of the road was a wagon blocking traffic. The milkman honked in hopes of getting the vehicle to move, but he quickly realized that the car was empty. So the milkman got out and decided to move the car himself. Oh, what? Just... (laughs) Yeah. um... So he shifted that son of a bee into neutral, got it all out of the road. And after getting out, he noticed blood drops on the pavement near the door. And he was like, what the fuck? And then he saw that there were blood drops everywhere. And so he went into town, called the police, who came to the scene. And at the scene, they too saw all the blood drops and then noticed a hat on the shore of the creek below the bridge. Oh, my gosh. The police were able to determine that the car belonged to Adolf Coors III. Now, the police notified his wife and then in a surprising turn notified the FBI right away that there was a missing persons case. Now, this is really unusual because it had not been 24 hours, yet he was not technically missing. So the FBI were notified and agreed to come out when the 24-hour mark. So they were kind of like preemptively telling him, you guys are going to have to come out if we don't find this guy within 24 hours. So they were like, we're on our way. Yeah. Now, at this time, Mary Adolph Coors received a ransom note, and the ransom note was typewritten written on an interesting paper with a watermark, and it read, Mrs. Coors, your husband has been kidnapped. His car is by Turkey Creek. Call the police or FBI. He dies. Oops. Cooperate. He lives. Ransom, 200000 in 10s and 300000 in 20s. There will be no negotiating. Bills used non-consecutive, unrecorded, unmarked. Warnings. We will know if you call the police or record the serial numbers. Directions. Place money and this letter and envelope in one suitcase or bag. Have two men with a car ready to make the delivery. When all set, advertise a tractor for sale in Denver Post Section 69. Sign ad King Ranch, Port Lupton. Wait at N.A. 9-4455 for instructions after ad appears. Deliver immediately after receiving call. Any delay will be regarded as a stall to set up a stakeout. Understand this. Adolf's life is in your hands. We have no desire to commit murder. All we want is that money. If you follow the instructions, he will be released unharmed within 48 hours after the money is received. Oh boy. So. Very detailed. Uh, With cooperation from the police, Mary followed the ransom note to a T, but she heard nothing back from the kidnappers. The police continued to search Coors' business, his home, and the wooded area where his car was left. They looked into people who might be of interest, who might want to make Coors pay. 
One angle they investigated was the local Colorado unions. Coors Company had been embroiled in recent years fighting the unions. They were accused of unfair labor practices, and the company was currently being boycotted. They interviewed people in the area and had a few people mention seeing an unfamiliar canary yellow 1951 Mercury. That stands out. They were able to find the man's name, Walter Osborne. Osborne was investigated further, and the FBI were able to find records of him purchasing a typewriter shortly before this. Ooh. They also found recent records of a gun purchase. The FBI then learned that Osborne had obtained an insurance policy at a previous job and that the policy designated a man named Joseph Corbett as his beneficiary. They eventually found the vehicle at a city dump in New Jersey, and it was burned. Okay... They searched for the link between Osborne and Corbett, only to uncover that Osborne was Corbett. And uh, Osborne was an alias. Oh. This alias was belonging to Joseph Corbett Jr., who had mysteriously disappeared around the same time Coors had. Corbett had been arrested for murder and was serving time in California when he escaped and had been on the lam since. Oh. So he became the prime suspect. Whoa, did not see that coming. Twists and turns. Yeah. <laughs> Now, it was September when they came to the conclusion, and at this time, items from Coors began, began to becoming found. So they were like, all right, we got our guy. We need to find him. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of personal effects were being found. On September 11th, 1960, a hiker stumbled upon a pair of discarded pants in the Rocky Mountains and in the pocket found a pen knife and key ring bearing the initials A-C-I-I-I. As in Adolf Coors III. Oh, God. Four days later, the shirt Coors had been wearing was found. As they investigated the area further, a skull was uncovered in the dirt. After analysis, it was determined to be the remains of Adolf Coors III. Not gonna lie, there was part of me that was like, he was in on this and is faking his own disappearance. Sadly, no. Darn. <laughs> At this time, the FBI put Corbett on the most wanted list, which was kind of out of the normal. Yeah. And media outlets were touting this is the biggest kidnapping investigation since the Lindbergh baby. Oh, wow. The FBI printed 1.5 million posters for this case. That's a lot. That's a lot. Unfortunately, the police were having a difficult time tracking down Corbett. They had pasted his picture all over the papers, even in magazines and local TV. And the FBI even began searching for Corbett outside of the U.S. A woman in Toronto, Canada, called the FBI after she picked up an issue of Reader's Digest and thought that the picture of the man in the wanted poster looked like her neighbor. So the Royal Canadian Mounted Police tracked him to Vancouver, and when they arrived at the hotel he was last seen at, he was there. Oh. And they arrested Corbett. Corbett Jr. was extradited to Colorado, where he was tried by the state for Coors' murder. Now, because Coors' remains were found within the state, he wasn't tried on federal kidnapping charges. Right. Uh, now, since there were no witnesses, the prosecution was tasked with getting a case based off of loose circumstantial evidence and forensics. Okay. Forensics at this time were really mostly fingerprints and dental records. Yeah. So during the trial, the 23 FBI agents... Five lab examiners and a fingerprint expert were called to help make the state's case. The most damning evidence was the typewriter, which had been found in the charred wreckage of the mercury belonging to Corbett. The second piece of damning evidence was dirt found in the tires of the car. Now, the dirt clod that was in the tires of the car 
contained rare pink feldspar and granite minerals, which were also found in the area where Coors' body was discovered. So this is the car that was burned? Yes. This is where they, okay. Mm-hmm. So they found dirt that matched the area where they found his body. Gotcha. Corbett never testified on, at the trial, and he never made a statement publicly. This was the story that the prosecution told about the event. So this is what they said happened. As Adolf Coors drove around the last bend, they called him Ad, that was his name for short, because, you know, Hitler. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he spotted a yellow mercury stranded on the narrow bridge. It was 8 a.m., just as Corbett had planned. Ad pulled onto the bridge behind the mercury. He shouted through a rolled-down window, asking if he could help. Corbett shouted back. His rehearsed reply, eager to get going, Ad stepped out of the travel all and shut the door, leaving the engine running and the radio playing. He didn't expect to be long. He figured he'd help push the stranded car out of the way and give it give the driver a ride to the nearest filling station. But as Ad approached, Corbett stepped forward and drew his pistol, taking the beer magnate by surprise. Ad was an intelligent but stubborn man, not the kind to don shackles and meekly slide into an assailant's car. As Corbett drew nearer, the six-foot-one, 185-pound Ad Coors seized his abductor's hand that gripped the gun. The two, almost identical in height and weight, struggled. Ad shoved his younger assailant backwards, and they slammed against the crude bridge railing. Ad's baseball cap, along with Corbett's fedora, flew into the creek. Ad's eyeglasses fell off, two cracking, and left lenses on impact. Ad pushed his antagonist away and made a break for the travel-all, but Corbett, seeing his ransom trying to escape, extended the pistol and fired. So that's what they say happened. Okay. Which seems plausible. Yes. Again, Corbett never made any mention that he did it, that that's what happened. Yeah. He was just silent. Was he denying it either? Or was he just and not he, really he saying? He said that, yeah. yeah, you know, that wasn't me. Okay. <laughs> and that was it. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't me. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. On March 29th, 1961, Corbett was convicted of first degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. Now, this being, you know, the 60s into the 70s, we all know murder convictions at this time rarely ever stay. And this one sure didn't. Now, Corbett was convicted of murder previously, although he claimed self-defense when he was convicted, then escaped and murdered someone else. So, you know, he doesn't have a great track record. This is why I don't understand why they let him go on parole on December 12th, 1980. God. It's a mystery. Because there's no standards. Right. So, like, he was, he went to prison for shooting someone in self-defense in California. He escaped and then killed somebody else. Like, yeah. that seems like a pattern to me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, in 1996, Joseph Corbett gave his one and only interview about this case. This is an excerpt from the interview with the Denver Post. For the first time since the kidnapping and slaying of Adolf Coors III 36 years ago, on February 9th, 1960, Corbett has spoken publicly about the crime he claims he didn't commit. In two interviews with the Denver Post last week, Corbett talked of his childhood, his years in prison, and his recent life in southwest Denver. So he went back to Colorado. <laughs> why? I mean, why? Wh- wh- where, where else would you go? <laughs> he also revealed a lifelong fascination with the Lindbergh kidnapping of 1932. So I wonder where he got the idea from. (laughs) Aging and slightly stooped, Corbett resembles a chemistry professor as he squints through wire-rimmed bifocals. Few would guess that this, (laughs) that his campuses were San Quentin and Cannon City, not Berkeley or Boulder. Okay. Despite convincing evidence against him, Corbett denies any role in the Coors kidnapping. Reclusive, bookish, and virtually friendless, and without family. (laughs) Joseph Corbett Jr., now 67, wants nothing these days so much as privacy. 
Because he is still recognized in public, the man with the 148 IQ spends his days in a small apartment drapes drawn tight with safety pins, reading his books and magazines, pondering what might have been. He disconnected his phone years ago, he said, because of crank callers. Corbett's has been a squandered life. This much he admits. If brains were computer chips, his would be a Pentium 150. (laughs) Damn, that's crazy. A Pentium 150, you say? Yes. Whoa, whoa. Pull up my nerd glasses. Yeah, right? Yeah, it's a Pentium 150. Before his life fell apart, Corbett was a Fulbright scholar at the University of Oregon. Now, Corbett went on in this interview to say that he had an alibi and that his alibi witnesses were never called to the stand. He claimed that he was having his car worked on and couldn't have been in the places where witnesses supposedly placed him. He also stated that several of the places people put him at he'd never been before in his life. And the one thing the article never did uh, was ask him how his car ended up at a dump in New Jersey on fire and why he fled to Canada if he was so innocent. Yeah. I mean, those seem like two really important questions that you should ask if you get this opportunity. Right. So but... like, also, again, too, why were you using an alias? Yeah. Why did you have an insurance policy on yourself in a different name? Yeah. You know, all of these weird questions. It's all very strange. Why did you escape from prison if it was self-defense? Man. Corbett committed suicide on August 24th, 2009, after being diagnosed with cancer at the age of 80. He maintained his innocence until his death. Wow. So, yep, that's the tale of the... Kidnapping and oopsie accidental murder of Adolf Coors the Third. Oops. I just want you to go home and pour some cold Rocky Mountain Coors out for Go home. Hug your Coors tight. <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. So I am looking at, well, the story starts with a plane crash. Ooh. This actually, so this is a huge case in Colorado. I was not familiar with it. And it's a little um, bonkers. But <laughs> so on November 2nd, 1955, United Airlines Flight 629 left Denver's Stapleton Airfield heading to Anchorage, Alaska. Shortly after takeoff, an explosion went off towards the front of the plane, causing the airliner to crash, killing all of the 44 passengers and crew. Almost immediately, investigators and cleanup volunteers began to suspect the explosion was not a plane malfunction. Terrorism. (laughs) Well, (laughs) this is pre-terrorism, I think. Oh, yeah. What did they call it back then? (laughs) well, they didn't call it anything because they will we'll talk about it. Domestic crimes. <laughs> um, so they while they were doing the cleanup in various areas, because this whole 
like various parts of the plane and debris covered a 15 mile radius. So at different parts in the plane wreckage, uh, investigators and cleanup volunteers were smelling dynamite like the very distinct smell of dynamite Mm -hmm. at various parts in the plane. So the investigating agencies included the FBI, the FAA, Civil Air Patrol, the United States Postal Service, and United Airlines. Because there was a bag of mail headed on the plane from Denver to Alaska. The explosives in the mail. True. But their mail was in that wreckage. So, you know, now they're involved. That is is federal crimes. You touch mail. Um, And all of these agencies were like working together to process what was left of the plane. Surprisingly, almost all of the luggage was in good condition because the explosion happened towards the front of the plane Mm -hmm. rather than in the back where all of the luggage is stored. Mm -hmm. All except for one, that is. Was one all charred and burned? Like it had explosives in it? Yes. (laughs) Um, So Hmm. the sole suitcase belonged to a woman named Daisy King, who investigators began looking into for a possible connection to the explosion. They discovered Mrs. King had a son named John Gilbert Graham, who had an extensive police record, which included stealing blank checks from an employer and running bootleg liquor. Standard. Standard. So the FBI, I really think like who wasn't running bootleg liquor at that time? Yeah. I feel like everybody was. Yeah. So Checks like, too. Check fraud was huge. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, really, that was just normal. Mm-hmm. So the FBI turned their focus towards Graham, who also had recently purchased life insurance policies mm-hmm. on Mrs. King at the airport worth more than $50,000. At the airport. Ugh. Yeah, I Back think the day where you could get everything at the airport. I think I talk <laughs> about this later, but he bought them from a vending machine for like a for like a dollar fifty. I think. Yeah, I believe it. You just like walk up to. It. I just imagine like a vending machine, turn the crank, and insurance policy comes out. You know, because they didn't have right like stickers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. You push the thing in and you pull out, and bit. it <laughs> comes out. It's you get a sticker of your insurance policy Pressed in between two thin sheets of cardboard. <laughs> yes. So. Graham, let's talk about him for a little bit, because his background cool. <laughs> is going to be wicked important in this oh, case. Oh, God. It's going to be crazy. crazy. Definitely. I'm going to say definitely like Bates Motel vibes. Ooh, cool. Yes. <laughs> let's go. So <laughs> Graham was born in January 1932 in Denver, Colorado, to Daisy Graham and her second husband at the time. Now, Daisy also had a daughter from a previous marriage. And for those of you who are like up on your history of the time, you'll know 1932 was kind of the height of the Depression. So not a great time to get born into because generally life was pretty tough. Mm -hmm. And then in 1937, when Graham was three years old, his father passed away from pneumonia. At that point, Graham was actually being raised by his grandmother while Daisy went off and remarried this well-to-do rancher named Earl King. Okay. So she kind of left Graham with with Grandma and was like... Mm. Grandma. (laughs) Grandma. Graham's grandmother died when he was nine. And rather than living with his mother and stepfather, he was sent to Clayton College for Boys. Sounds yeah. fancy is actually an orphanage. Yeah, yeah. That's how they get you. <laughs> it's like, oh, Clayton College for Boys, you say. Mm-hmm. Actually an orphanage. Yeah. 
Actually, slave labor by children. <laughs> yeah. So the Denver Public Library actually describes Clayton College as, quote, a relatively progressive orphanage that allowed the boys a fair amount of physical freedom. So it actually didn't sound like Only two, half the beatings. Two, yeah, right. It didn't sound, I mean, like, there's some really shitty orphanages. You get three bowls of gruel. <laughs> right. This was, I mean, we've talked about orphan trains before mm-hmm. and, like, just people buying orphans to do manual labor at their yeah, houses and then and things, dying of yeah. starvation mm-hmm. and uh improper health care, etc. But like this one didn't they made it sound like not as bad as all of that. As good as an orphanage could possibly get. <laughs> yeah, in the nineteen thirties, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it it was still like this kind of place that to Graham seemed that his parents just put him there so they didn't have to deal with him. Mm-hmm. So likely led to a lot of feelings of abandonment that uh graham really it really stuck with him like his entire life Mm -hmm. only added to by the fact that he would return to his stepfather's ranch for the holidays and then be sent back to clayton's college for boys after the holiday break was over so part-time orphan yes okay yeah um so he'd like go home and have a little taste of like being home with family and then be like back to the orphanage with you that's so bizarre yeah it's very weird it's very weird when he was 13 graham actually moved in with a neighbor of the stepfather and (laughs) it was like just for a short period of time but it didn't really work out and so he was finally allowed to live with his mother at the ranch at some point in all of this, his stepfather actually passed away and left her with all the stuff. So I mean, that's not that's an unhired hand. Why didn't you just like come do yeah. labor? Well, and it seemed it. like the mother, like I've. It's interesting because I see the description of Graham being Daisy's favorite child, mm-hmm. and she would do anything for him. But at the same time, like it was the dad. It was a stepdad. He's like, I don't need your third wheel kid around here. <laughs> but he wasn't thinking about it properly. Send yeah. that kid out and yeah. do the dude ranch yeah. stuff. <laughs> um, the relationship between Graham and Daisy would remain strained until her death in the plane crash. Um, when he got older, Graham actually enlisted in the Coast Guard for a short time before entering into a cycle of like short-term employment and run-ins with the police. This mm. is kind of when his he started getting this police record. Every time his mom would bail him out or pay the restitution. And I definitely get this kind of like, mm, like rich kid vibe where it's just like, especially at that time where it was really easy to just pay off, be like, make this go away. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause she was still super wealthy. The impression that I get though, is that Graham felt a lot of resentment towards his mother and never felt like well, he really, she really wanted him or that dump him in an orphanage. <laughs> he was loved by her. Yeah. Warranted. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Totally justified in those yeah, feelings. It wasn't like she was a drug addict and had to forcibly leave him there. She chose to put him in an orphanage. Yeah. So she could live with her rich husband. Yep. Not saying this is right, but like, that's just the reality of the... <laughs> this is the reality. In 1953, Graham married a woman named Gloria and had two kids. Uh, Daisy bought Graham and his family a house, gave him a job managing her. It's like a drive-in restaurant called the Crown A. In interviews with the FBI, Graham said that the drive-in his mother owned was not financially successful, although he also pointed out that it had been successful when he was actually allowed to run it. So I kind of get the impression that like his manager status was kind of entitled only and 
Daisy was kind of like running things over his head. Mm. And so he was like, but I'm the manager. So it was also during this interview that it was revealed there had been an explosion at the drive-in in September 1955. Uh, Burgers, man. (laughs) Someone had come in and disconnected the gas line, allowing gas to fill the room until it reached the pilot light on the water heater, which ignited and then caused the explosion. Like an insurance scam. Interesting, (laughs) right? Now, these interviews with the FBI, along with uh, interviews of Mrs. Graham and other relatives and associates, became crucial in putting the events together from that day. In November 1955, um, Daisy had actually been living with Graham and his family on and off. So she would like she did a lot of traveling and flying around because she had a couple of properties all over the place. So she would like come in, stay at the house for a while, go off to deal with some business, come back in, stay at the house, go to this other property, back and forth, back and forth. And it was partly to help Mrs. Graham take care of her two young children because they were like um, not even two years old. Now, according to Graham, Daisy had planned to head to Alaska to hunt caribou. And as that, you do. As you do. Um, and that she had a large number of shotgun shells and rifle ammunition for that purpose with her. Okay. <laughs> he was unable to give any further information about the contents of his mother's luggage as she never let anyone help her pack, which is something that was confirmed by Mrs. Graham. She, they were like, she is so particular about the way she packs. She never lets anybody touch her suitcase. Mm-hmm. We just want to help the old bag, but... <laughs> She's got to meticulously put all of her shock- yeah. shells in there. <laughs> yeah, right. One by one. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Graham also told the FBI that she had seen her husband give Daisy a gift the day before, shortly before leaving for the airport, although she didn't know what was in it as it hadn't been opened before she left. Mrs. Graham assumed that it had been a small set of tools that's used for forming seashells into art objects that Mrs. Graham, that, that Graham had talked about getting for his mom for Christmas. Okay. I didn't know they made kits for such a thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe these are rich person hobbies that I'm just like. I mean, possibly. I don't it know anything more about. like something you can get from the Scholastic Book Fair. But you <laughs> Use know. these tools to form shells right? into pictures. <laughs> so she just, she saw the gift and assumed that's what it was because he had talked about getting it for her for mm-hmm. Christmas. So maybe. Um, shells up in Alaska, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> All the caribou shells. Mm-hmm. Further questioning turned up some inconsistencies between Graham's statement and his wife's statement, which really made Graham the FBI's number one suspect. A search of his house turned up a roll of copper wire with yellow insulation that was used in detonating primer caps. Mm -hmm. The trip insurance policy for Daisy E. King, with Graham listed as the beneficiary, FBI again brought Graham in for further questioning on inconsistencies in his statements, at which point he confessed to the explosion at the drive-in, something we didn't talk about, intentionally leaving his 1955 Chevrolet on railroad tracks to be hit by a train. That was also a thing he did. And intentionally causing the explosion that killed 44 people, including his own mother. God. Okay. Graham had constructed a time bomb made of 25 sticks of dynamite. Two dynamite. That's a lot. I saw that. It was like, holy shit. That is a lot of thick amount of dynamite. Um, Two electric primer caps, a timer, and a six volt battery. I also saw um, 
that she he had when he took the luggage to the counter like he paid the extra $35 because it was overweight mm-hmm. like it was over he had to pay a fee because <laughs> because of the because of all the 25 because of all the dynamite, dynamite yeah <laughs> um later when speaking with prison psychiatrists Graham talked about hiding the homemade bomb in his mother's suitcase before she left Graham then set the timer for 90 minutes before giving the luggage to the United Airlines counter mm. Walking through the airport, Graham stopped at a vending machine, this is it, and purchased the $37,500 in life insurance for $1.50 and put himself down Amazing as a beneficiary. <laughs> I just love, I love the idea of life insurance vending machines. Because again, remember, like, this is that time where you'd be like, I want to take a life insurance policy out of my neighbor. Yeah. You know, lawless. <laughs> nobody gave a shit. You just did it. And then all of a sudden they turn out dead and then you get money. Yeah. That's kind of how it worked. Now, according to Denver 7 ABC, quote, he told the doctors that he realized there would be dozens of other people on the plane, but the number of people to be made to be killed made no difference to me. He told the doctors it could have been a thousand. When their time comes, there is nothing they can do about it. End quote. Why didn't he sabotage the car? Along with his mom at the same time. Because he and his family drove her to the airport. Mm -hmm. And they talk about, too, like, after she got on the plane, he got really sick in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Um, And some people talk about it as, like, an excited stomach. Because knowing what's happening, he explained that as he and his family had had dinner at this place at the airport. And the food was, like, cheap and bad. Mm -hmm. And so he got sick in the bathroom. Like, there's that, too. So, like... He took it does not happen that fast. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So he took them. Um, he took his mom with all of his family in the car, too. There could have been a, definitely a different way for him to. Yeah. Her. Yeah. That didn't involve blowing up a plane with so many people on it. Right. Uh, Graham had been charged with sabotage, which was later changed to murder for the murder of Daisy King, because at the time there were no federal statutes that made it a crime to blow up an airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, so and this is all why of a sudden people would be blowing up fucking airplanes left and right. Yes. <laughs> so this is why when you said terrorism, I was like, yeah, that wasn't a thing yet because mm-hmm. they they weren't even considering. I mean, really, the term terrorism didn't happen until the eighties. No, no. So. Of course, Graham attempted many times to avoid these charges, first by recanting his confession like three or four days later. This was, of course, unsuccessful due to the amount of evidence that investigators also had against him. At one point, Graham attempted to plead insanity, eventually attempting suicide while awaiting trial. Uh, He was put under 24-hour surveillance and given a mental health evaluation, and the doctors determined that he was mentally stable enough to stand trial. Mm. This at that time is one of those things that I'm like, maybe, maybe not, because the standards for what's considered mentally stable have changed significantly. Yeah. (laughs) Also, I mean, it's entirely possible he still was, but I'm just saying, anytime I see that in research, I'm like, sure. (laughs) Is he though? Is anyone truly mentally stable? (laughs) No, no, nobody our age for sure. This trial in particular was a special one because it was the first trial in United States history to allow cameras into the courtrooms um, during the proceedings. Now, of course, these weren't live broadcasts because mm-hmm. um, they didn't have the technology at the time. Yeah. Uh, and so people were able to like opt out if they didn't want to be on television. They could like go back and edit. No, and, like, <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, also, this I thought was interesting. The judge was given a special button that would turn the cameras on and off when they needed them. So if he needed to have like counsel, uh, 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 private counsel, 
and just turned the cameras off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interestingly enough, Graham was the only person to opt out of the television coverage. We already know what you look like. <laughs> right. Uh, it took the, ju- the jury just over an hour to return a guilty verdict, and Graham was sentenced to death. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> seems like Just a- over an hour. He... Yep, he confessed. <laughs> yeah. Recant um, or not. <laughs> I also saw that, like, during the trial, the defense didn't object to any of the witnesses or any of the testimony. They just kind of let the, the case play out. Mm-hmm. Graham chose to waive all of his appeals, appearing to be resigned to his fate. Eventually, his execution date was set for January 1957. While he was on death row, Graham continued to deny that he had killed his mother, although he readily admitted to building the bomb. How does that work? I don't know. I built it, but she detonated. <laughs> yeah. I built it, but I didn't leave it there. Right. Like She packed it because no one was allowed to. <laughs> yeah. I made sure to show her how to set the timer the night before, but after that, I don't know what she did with it. Like and all the shotgun shells just set it off. <laughs> yeah. Friction, right? <laughs> Graham became the 96th person to be put to death under Colorado's death penalty. Um, And at this point in time, it was when the gas chamber was being used. Oh, man. Yeah. So he was put to death by gas chamber. That's not fun. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Something interesting happened after his death, actually, again, from the Denver Public Library, quote, in a bit of the brand of irony that frequently accompanies atrocity, Graham was able to convert his own death into insurance money. As a part of a complicated bit of litigation with his mother's estate and the insurance company that underwrote the policy he'd purchased at the airport, Graham's widow was able to cash in on a $10,000 policy on his passing, which is about $93,000 in 2020 money. Um, under the terms of the deal, the insurance insurance company and King Estate paid off a $500 premium on a separate policy on Graham's life that his indigent widow widow was unable to pay on her own in exchange for relinquishing any claims on the estate or other policies. So they were basically like, we'll pay this and you can have the payout from this policy as long as you don't make any claims on the estate or any additional policies. Mm-hmm. Essentially. Oh, Even the though insurance was so sketchy as Fuck back then. Even though he was killed by execution yeah. <laughs> on purpose by the state. Technically, that's murder. Yes. He yes. Didn't do it. <laughs> so that's interesting. Um, so weird. This particular bombing was really like the first of its kind in the United States and inspired so many more insurance-motivated airline bombing and bombings in its wake. Mm-hmm. I saw something... Um, that was like it was like ninety six within the next year of these, and of course this, you got a good idea. You got a good idea. They're like, oh, you did that. Oh, I'm gonna do that. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is the time period where it became real cool to do crime on airplane in yeah. general. God, DB Cooper. Right, the sixties into the seventies. It's like we're yeah. gonna do so many plane crimes. Yes, <laughs> yes. So like this was kind of like this um, as far as violent airline crime, mm-hmm. kind of got the ball rolling on that. Unfortunately. Yeah. But still, people didn't use them as weapons. Yeah. Interesting. It also inspired Congress to address the lack of statutory law relating to mass transit crimes. Just walk right onto a tarmac and throw a fucking cluster of dynamite into a plane. Right. You know? And so in 1957, they passed an act making airline and bus bombings a federal crime. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, like, 
the landscape of airline crime has changed quite a bit in our modern age. Mm -hmm. You know, still let people walk all up over the airport, (sighs) even though crimes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it is. I I do miss that. Much safer. <laughs> it's much safer to fly now than it ever has been. Um, I think there's I mean, more of a threat from people acting of, crazy. Yeah, I mean, safer in terms of like people not blowing up planes. Yes, but still not safer because now, we, like you said, we have people like going off the handle with like small weapons. Yes. Um, and then also just the fact that the lack of service and maintenance on airplanes has significantly increased because nobody really flies as much as they used to. Yeah. So now you have that issue of planes just crashing because people aren't maintaining them. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, (laughs) that never get in a plane (laughs) is the moral of our story. That is the story of John Graham. God damn. Killing his mom. See what I mean when it was like Bates Motel vibes? It's kind of like, mm. mommy never loved me. I'm going to blow up a plane. The ultimate temper tantrum. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess. Uh, before you step on another plane. <laughs> before you board an airplane. Uh, maybe check out this podcast. And also uh, head on over to an insurance vending machine. and get, Find one. Get policy. <laughs> on you and everyone you know. Mm-hmm. I'm Ellen, and I'm scared we exist in the Matrix. I'm Jaslyn, and I'm bad at ad-libbing. <laughs> and you're listening to High, High Expectations. Expectations, the promo. For our international listeners, you can appreciate our cute New Zealand accents. For our local listeners, you might bump into us in the street three times in the same hour. Our podcast is about pop culture, sexuality, relationships, interesting hobbies, banter, and ragging on each other. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict, or anywhere you might like to find podcasts. Yay! Please subscribe. Goodbye! Well, Janelle, that has been our show. We made it through another one! Woo! (laughs) Yeah! So much enthusiasm coming out of this room. Because right after this, I'm going to go get lunch and then take a nap. That sounds like a great plan. I have yeah. to go do art things. And then do homework. <laughs> art things. I don't have to do any homework. I got tons. I have to do a lot of painting of stuff and spraying and sealing. and Fun. Fun. Yeah. Um, so what do we got? Do we have anything? Uh, when is this coming out? Um, oh, what's time? Let's take a look. Is this the new year already? Hey, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure we're in the new year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We are recording at a weird time where none of us know anything that's happening. No. Um, All right. Well, then. Uh, so congratulations on the new year. Hooray. We made it. You 2022, had, guys. You had so many good holidays. <laughs> Back to the real world. Back to the grind. Mm-hmm. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, you can find this and many more like this at badtastecrimepod.com. We also have a link to our merch site if you want to get some like sweatshirts or like do you have crew necks i kind of want a new crew neck it's kind of what i need i know yeah we should be updating the shop here (laughs) pretty soon um i think we're gonna have a little bit more time yeah yeah so we'll save some time to that but if you want to support the show you can also do so there's a donate page at the website just hop on over there and there's a bunch of exclusive content on our Mm -hmm. patreon I didn't do anything special for the holidays this year because... It's been busy, guys. Yeah. You know. Skin of our teeth busy. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, maybe coming up on when I have spring break. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We will see. I'll do something weird. 
like but doing that. <laughs> in the meantime, we will say our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, the Enigma. <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Bye, guys. Some